Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BH112, Kant, Communist Strategy of Deception, Misinformation, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 220, June 5, 1990. Before we go into our subject for this particular session, I'd like to give Otto an opportunity to comment a little further on uh, Golitsyn's New Lies Road and the whole general subject of the uh, Soviet power and our power. Yes, so thank you. Sometimes the obvious seems to come later. I believe when we discussed this before, uh, we ended with the uh, general agreement that the United States is in the process of surrendering. And we forgot, I forgot to say that the reason for the surrender is a very valid one. We do not have the power to confront the Soviets in any serious way. People have been criticizing Maggie Thatcher's government for not doing something to protect Hong Kong against it being turned over to the Red China in 1997 or whenever. But the fact is that England doesn't have the military power to protect that island. If the Red Chinese were to move in tomorrow morning, there is nothing that England could do about it. In fact, England has done its best to cushion the transition for the benefit of the people there. Mm -hmm. But in the final analysis, it has to give way. Yes. And we are not in a position to do anything about Lithuania or Latvia or Estonia. If the Soviets were to send tanks in tomorrow morning, we couldn't do a blessed thing about it. And we are not able in military terms, to stand up and push the Soviet back anywhere in the world at this point. So, therefore, we have to say that our government is moving, probably, in a practical way. In my opinion, its greatest sin is in not telling the people the truth of the situation so that we could restore our dignity, our position, and we could begin to pull together in order to improve our situation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rush. Well, uh, it's wonderful when you have a tape and you can uh, get your afterthoughts in. Isn't it? Unlike going home from some meeting <laughs> or dinner and thinking of something you should have said that would have been exactly right. Oh, I've been so witty in <laughs> retrospect. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Well, in this session, our subject is going to be new books and old, and perhaps we can say also new ideas and old. I'm going to start with something which is really a book, although it goes by the name of a magazine, The World and I, March 1990. The World and I is a fat uh, magazine, so-called, $10 a copy, with all kinds of articles in it. And the one I'm going to begin with, uh, to begin as low as possible, 
is an article by Brad Miner, M-I-N-E-R, Roseanne's TV, All America, TV's All-American Mother. Roseanne Barr. Uh, well, he doesn't like her. I can't understand why. <laughs> but uh, he says, and I quote, Victims, Joseph Epstein wrote recently in the New York Times magazine, had never been in short supply in the world, but the rush to identify oneself as a victim is rather a new feature of modern life. Why? As Epstein goes on to explain, these days a victim gets our compassion, our indulgence, and our money. They aren't Roseanne's own words, although they could be. Roseanne's of this world demand to be called pretty, claiming equality of appearance among all women, yet wring their hands about losing their men to prettier sisters. End of quote. So, he says, Roseanne Barr, with all the millions she's making, is determined that she is a victim. And she is going to prove that there is an absolute equality and uh, do it by appearing nude in a future film. Well, yes. What? She was very angry, and it was in the media that she was not allowed to appear nude in her first picture. Well, they had mercy on the audience. <laughs> Let me read what he says, in part. For Ms. Barr, you have to guess financial success means, what, five or ten million bucks in fiscal 89? Big money, whatever the amount. And she'll probably realize her ambition God help us to be Woody Allen. I'd like to make movies like he does, she told Premier, where basically you tell the same story a million different ways over and over. Her movies will be about a woman, a fat Jewish lady who is the victim of Christian male chauvinist power, but overcomes her enemies, and here I'm guessing, in apocalyptic fashion. She will write, produce, and direct as only a powerless New Age millionaires can. And I warn you, she will take off her clothes because the time has come for revelation. For the woman in the stories that only the wide screen can contain. So now you know. End of quote. Wouldn't it be <laughs> wonderful? If some of these very successful people would say a kind word for the nation that made them so rich and famous. Yes, yes. And of course, <coughs> she's, she's like these. unthinkable. They'd be too square and too old-fashioned. If she does take her clothes off, the, the nudist movement may never recover. <laughs> Horrible thought. There may be a movement to close all women with moo-moos like the South Pacific Island woman from head to foot. What an ambition. Gosh. Well, I've stunned you a bit, Otto. You Do you think you're me? capable of no. uh, continuing? You threw me back. 
<laughs> we have, I have here a book in my hand called Books That Changed the World, and you just brought up Looks That Changed the World. <laughs> now, you didn't have to regret uh, not coming up with a good idea tonight. <laughs> it's interesting. <clears throat> I remember the fellow said to me one day, and I may have told this before, he said, Who reads? I said, people who give orders to people like you. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, let's see, Otto. With all the reading I do, I should be giving orders to a great many people. <laughs> well, I think you do in an indirect sort of way. I have this book, Books That Changed the World, and I really do, and I really have. One of the first I see is uh, Augustine's Confessions. Mm -hmm. For 1,500 years, he was the most popular author in the West. 1,500 years. Can you imagine? And he was the first man to write about his conversion. It can still move you. Yes. But, of course, the effects have not always been good. The next one I see, or one of the next on the list, is Rachel Carson's silent spring there she was dying of cancer she thought the whole world was dying with her I suppose you do feel that way if you have a lingering death and she was such a brilliant writer she could write about nature I think more brilliantly than anyone I've ever read and in her fantasy her dying fantasy she dreamed of a world without birds and all the devastation that that would bring in its trail. Well, of course, this is a fantasy, but it was taken up, and there are people who believe it, who actually and truly think that God is so heedless that he would allow the birds to vanish. Yes. You mentioned her dying one of the most powerful things ever written about death, the death of an ungodly person, was by Tolstoy. I forget the name of the character, the death of Ivan something. Ivan Ilyich. Ilyich, Ivan yes. Ilyich, yes. yes. How this man, as he's dying, becomes resentful of the living, powerfully depicted. Yes. And I have seen that. I have perhaps been by more deathbeds than half a dozen pastors. Why and was I, that? Because I was the only pastor for a hundred miles in any direction when I was on the reservation. Mm -hmm. And then I served as a pastor subsequently in a community of elderly people. So I would have a lot of... Mm -hmm dying people to call on. And I did see some very beautiful deaths. Remarkable. And I also saw some who fought death with an intense fear. That's always hard to see. A good friend of mine years ago who was a racetrack writer, I wrote about the horses, 
He was an interesting man. I asked him one day about horses. I said, I've never really known any horses and so forth. Well, he said, it's a small world, but it's a good one. It's a, it's a close world. He said, I know everybody from the stable boys to Jock Whitney. And he said, there's a democracy in the racehorse crowd, he said, which is uh, comforting. But he, he died hard. It wasn't the nature of the way he went. He, uh, he had throat cancer, and they took out his larynx, and he had to write on a slate. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that whenever he thought of his condition, and inadvertently I said something, and I don't know what it was, which suddenly reminded him. I was visiting him in his hospital room, and the fear that came in his eyes was so naked that it embarrassed me. Uh, really, I was shocked. Mm -hmm. And it was, again, uh, a total lack of faith. I have seen people die where you could only say that you felt very close to heaven. Their death was so magnificent and things happened that were clearly supernatural. A remarkable thing. Well, to go on to something else, one of the very interesting books I read very recently, and uh, in fact finished it just about a week ago, discussed it a week ago Sunday, in by uh, referring to it in the morning sermon by Anthony F.C. Wallace, The Social Context of Innovation. The subtitle, Bureaucrats, Families, and Heroes in the Early Industrial Revolution as Foreseen in Bacon's New Atlantis. It was published by Princeton University Press in 1982. What he deals with uh, is the nature of invention, the innovations that came in, the background of them, and in the course of it he's fair-minded in that he deals with many, many things that he doesn't agree with. He calls attention, for example, that uh, the Puritan reading of the book of Daniel and the fact that Daniel foresaw a rebirth of learning and a completion of man's dominion over nature profoundly influenced scientists. Uh, he doesn't go as far with that thesis as others do. But uh, Wallace is very fair, and he records that. He also uh, does a great deal with, uh, he calls it, by the way, the Puritan technological millenarianism. Very interesting term. He deals with the fact that the corporations for generations that began technology were all family corporations, family owned. <laughs> and their uh, sons-in-laws were taken in and made a part of the corporation. He deals with the relationship of land and family. Uh, the book, from beginning to end, is very interesting. 
Now, one of the things that uh, I think you might find of more than a little interest, Otto, is that he has uh, a few pages on Samuel Smiles. Oh, the painter. Oh, the writer. The writer, yes. Yes, Who wrote Self-Help, Duty, I have some of his books. Yes. Very good writer. And he was a uh, physician, had been a railroad official, and he wrote popular lives of engineers to celebrate the new kind of hero who is remaking the world. So Samuel Smiles, who's very much ridiculed now, Mm -hmm. did have an important part in popularizing the technology and calling attention to the men whom he felt were the true heroes of modern culture. But he was actually a very good writer. Yes. Nobody that reads him would make fun of him. Well, scholars feel almost duty-bound to ridicule him, but Samuel Smiles does deserve a biography at someone's hands because he did shape the thinking of people, and we need to get back to his perspective because the kind of writing you've done, industrial history, he began on a popular level and made it influential in the advancement of our culture. Well, of course, that's one of the great blind spots of the conservative uh, writers of today. They all want to write sermons about free enterprise, but they don't want to write about anybody that's involved in the market. Yes. They don't write, write about any corporations or businesses or businessmen or anything else. They, they, they stay as far away from them as the left does. Yet, of course, they always have their hand up. And the publishers don't like to touch those books because it's considered as disreputable as writing about, uh, publishing a book about Orthodox Christianity. Well, uh, it's worse now. My Cole book was originally supposed to be published by Athenaeum, but Pat Knopf sold out to Macmillan. And when I called and said, well, the book is ready, he said, I'm no longer in charge. I said, well, you can recommend it. He said, well, yes, but he said they don't necessarily listen. And in due course, his successors told me they didn't believe in publishing those sort of books anymore. So I called Pat back and said, why don't you act as my agent? After all, you owe me a lot. He said, well, I'll be happy to. I'll do my best. And three weeks later, he called and said, believe it or not, I cannot find a publisher for you. The doors had closed. No more books about business success. The door is always open for business failure or business scandal, just as it is with Christianity. You don't, you're not going to read about Christian success. You're going to read about Christian difficulties, Christian yes. problems. Well, let me, let me talk about that in a minute. I, I did read a new book, relatively new book, called England's Iconoclast, Laws Against Images, by Margaret Aston, uh, Clarendon Press, Oxford, 1988. And we are, of course, almost all well aware of uh, iconoclasts in Switzerland and on the continent, and to some extent in Scotland. You 
know, when people mm-hmm. heard knocks and then would rush out and destroy images and clear out churches and so forth. But England had its iconoclasts also. And Margaret Aston's examination of the historical context of iconoclasm in the Reformation. Uh, I remember when I was young uh, and getting a brush with education that the iconoclasts are always connected to the Orthodox Christians and not to the Western Christians. But Protestantism has a very strong iconoclastic element. And so does uh, the Spanish Catholic Church. Uh, In fact, uh, a Harvard professor told me that one of the most explosive incidents he ever saw was when he was in France in this Catholic bookstore, and they had just received a lot of uh, images to put uh, for sale. And they... uh, had them on this table where they were uh, unwrapping them and placing them. And this Spanish Monsignor came in, and the uh, proprietor's wife uh, called these images to his attention and uh, said, aren't they wonderful? And he exploded. He took his cane and swept them all off the table and read her the riot act for having them. The well, Spanish church was full of that. We're paying a heavy price now. Mm-hmm. We're paying a heavy price for that. Mm-hmm. Because imagery is being used against the church. Yes, well, it was uh, ironic Calvin opposed the defacing and destruction of any images. So did Luther. And so did Luther. It was Zwingli, who was the fanatic on that score, who opposed even music, anything sensuous, he condemned. Well, of course it was a revolutionary act in the sense that the revolution really becomes real to the average person when the symbols of the tradition Mm-hmm. are destroyed. I mean, that's why the burning of the flag in the United States is a very revolutionary act. And the Supreme Court is proving that it's illiterate and historically unlearned mm-hmm. by not recognizing the fact that the destruction of the symbol is an attack upon the essence, an attack upon the faith. The uh, To associate... And a, a physical act of burning a flag with expression mm-hmm. is to confuse words and action. It's a form of illiteracy one wouldn't have expected from a Supreme Court. But to go back to the image break business, there is still a heavy hangover mm-hmm. of antipathy toward imagery in Protestantism, yes. which has created an almost an elite attitude toward popular art, which over a period of time has alienated 
to people from Protestantism. Yes. I think uh, Clark, in his secularization of the European mind in the 19th century, talked about that, where mm -hmm. the average person began to feel, or the average working person began to feel that he wasn't good enough to go in some of those churches because they were so better dressed and they were so severe and they were so austere. They just didn't feel that he fit. Yes. Was that Clark or Chadwick? Chadwick. It was yes. Owen Chadwick. I'm yes. sorry. Yes. Well, I'd like to call attention to a book which uh, is a very old one, reprinted in 1978 in English by Bernard of Clairvaux, <laughs> The Life and Death of St. Malachy the Irishman. Oh, how nice. It's... Uh, Carry on. Yes. <laughs> One of the interesting things that the uh, editor, uh, Professor Myers, I believe, yes, Robert T. Mayer, calls attention to is that after the fall of Rome and the barbarian triumph throughout Europe, Ireland was the Christian center. Mm -hmm. And a great deal of the re-Christianization of Europe took place from Ireland. Uh, subsequently, of course, the church in Ireland suffered heavily from the depredations of the uh, Norsemen, plus <laughs> the feuding of the various uh, petty uh, Irish kingdoms. Uh, one of the interesting things to me is that uh, Bernard of Clairvaux's account of St. Malachy shows that uh, the office of bishop was uh, commonly hereditary in Ireland hmm. in those early centuries. Also, that the term that uh, the clergy used for themselves in Ireland was the Levites of the Lord. Uh, and the bishops also were married, I should add. The book is very, very interesting, a, a saint's life, but these were written to be read out loud to groups of monks or Christians and to incite them to greater devotion. And it's a very beautiful uh, story from beginning to end, old-fashioned language and terminology. When was it originally written? Uh, at the time of Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, and his, I think he died around 1150. Mm -hmm. So, and he presided at the funeral of St. Malachy. Uh, St. Malachy was a remarkable man in the history of Ireland because he had a great deal to do with the revival of a strong Christianity in that country. That's interesting. I can think uh, of the most valuable book I've seen on the initial period of the Bolshevik Revolution as the Time of Troubles by Gautier. Yes, I... Now, that's been recently printed... 
and it covers a, a diary which was, he wrote between July 8, 1917 and July 23, 1922. Gautier was descended from a French family of jewelers and he was a professor at the University of Moscow. He was a historian and he was also one of the directors of the Moscow Museum. So therefore he was in a favored position and he was allowed to keep two rooms in his apartment, his five-room apartment, for himself and his family. What the Bolsheviks did, they moved the capital of the country from St. Petersburg to Moscow. Before they did, they took an inventory of every room in the city and they threw most of the aristocrats out on the street to die in the winter and then the cold. And they moved the working class into the, all the other places. But of course, first, the members of the party took the palaces, just like Kerensky moved into the Tsar's mm -hmm. suite in the palace and so forth. So, and he had gold, Gautier did, but in the end he had to use it to buy potatoes and to buy insulin for his wife who had diabetes. So even though gold is useful in the time of calamity, it depends on what's available. And at one point, I remember he said, how is it possible for a country as rich as this and as large as this to fall apart in a period of 18 months? And then he said, well, we were at each other's throats for the previous 75 years. So when the crisis came, there was nothing to hold us together. And I would recommend that to anybody who wants to know what really bad times are like. Mm -hmm. It's a grim book. It is a grim book, but it's, it's an interesting book because it was written in total honesty and he gave it to a, uh, an American scholar named Frank Golden to smuggle out of the country. And Frank Golden never brought it or showed it to anybody. He died, and it was left with all his other papers in the archives at the Hoover Institute. And only recently was it unearthed, translated, and printed. And it's been badly reviewed because he had some unflattering things to say about some of the commissars. Mm -hmm. I'd like to touch briefly on a book that uh, is nothing remarkable, a bit sad, but instructive all the same. It's RLS in the South Seas by uh, Alana Knight. RLS, of course, Robert Louis Stevenson. And I'm very fond of Stevenson's writings and his poetry. And what this uh, book is about is his voyage from one part of the Pacific to the other, looking for a place to stay. Of course, he was to die, finally, uh, of tuberculosis in a Pacific island. Samoa, wasn't it? I believe it was Samoa, yes. You're right, I what it reveals, though, <clears throat> is something that struck me very forcibly because I knew that Stevenson had abandoned the 
Calvinistic faith of his mother, but I had no awareness of how liberal he had become. Uh, humanist and a liberal in a rather sentimental sense. Hmm. But the thing that struck me forcibly was that his training, an old-fashioned Scottish training, was what governed his writings. Well, it was very moral. Yes. He knew the difference between right and wrong. And he also uh, thoroughly well, accepted in his writings the depravity of man. Oh, yes. And books have been, or articles have been written and lectures given about the remarkable uh, parallel to Calvinistic doctrine in so many of his writings. Well, Jekyll and Hyde. Yes. Who was the same man. Yes. So it does tell us what education does, what a, a person's background does, and how it lingers. So that at a time when uh, Stevenson was writing one thing, when he spoke casually to people, he revealed a totally different character. Well, a couple of generations back, even our criminals yes. were Christian. Yes. They knew when they sinned. That's right. And they had a code of honor. Mm hmm. Now it's hard to find it on the right side of the law sometimes. Well, now the, the <clears throat> things that they're doing are depraved beyond belief. Yes. Without guilt. <clears throat> yes. Because they have absolutely no moorings at all mm -hmm. and apparently you know I've run into recently some younger men who are quite talented and totally uncultured they have all the culture of a horse <laughs> it's amazing yes I don't know how it's possible to grow up without any standard in literature in music in manners or in anything and yet, uh, they've gone to school for long periods of time, and they, they have a flair for money-making. Just be careful what you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. don't, don't get away from the specific. <clears throat> but otherwise, they'll fall in, into the mud right before your eyes. <laughs> well, I'd like to touch on uh, three different books now very closely related and the first is one I haven't read it's newly out but it is reviewed in the June 1990 The World and I and it is a book by Roger Kimball entitled Tenured Radicals How Politics Has Corrupted Our Higher Education and published this year by Harper and Rowe. The review is subtitled, well, the title, Rebels Against Reason, and the subtitle, The Most Influential Purveyor of Conformity, Hypocrisy, and Irrationality in Your Community is not your local fundamentalist church. It is your local college campus.
and Kimball gives a great deal of evidence, according to this review, of the kind of uh, irrational and anti-Christian thinking that prevails. In fact, he raises a question. How far should we trust gurus who want to liberate us from rational thought? And, of course, he says, this is the goal of the modern university. Now, the other two books, one which I dealt with some time ago, I think, I'm not sure, by Charles J. Sykes, Prof Scam, Professors on the Demise of Higher Education put out by Regnery Gateway in 1988. This is a devastating analysis of what the academicians are like, their hours and their pay, what they think a university is for, how they trivialize education. Uh, One university has a course on Bridget Bardot, course. (laughs) They're 30 years too late. Yes. We needed that a long time ago. (laughs) And uh, for a time at Harvard you could get credit for courses in scuba diving and sport and political ideology (laughs) and other such courses. Uh, Has a great deal on what Harvard has taught or teaches. Also, the fact that to prevent you and uh, others like us from knowing what's going on, in some instances it's been made a felony to sit in a classroom without the professor's consent. A felony? A felony. You can go to the penitentiary? (laughs) Yes. It's not worth it, is it? Yes. This was in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, nervous academics and friendly legislators sought to put teeth into the protections. State Representative Marlon Schneider introduced a bill that would make it a felony to sit in a classroom against the wishes of the instructor. That's the state that sent us Hubert Humphrey and Mondale. Yes. Violators would be subject to a fine of up to $10,000, a two-year prison term, or both, for sitting in a classroom. And not even laughing. Yes. (laughs) Well, there's a great deal more in this that uh, is really amazing. Uh, Sykes has done a marvelous job. And, of course, he deals with tenure, and not very favorably. Well, why should a typist in a college office have tenure? Everybody yes. in the system has tenure. Mm-hmm. The janitor, the truck driver. From kindergarten on up through yes. graduate school. has tenure. Isn't that wonderful? Well, the other book is by Paige Smith an academician, Killing the Spirit, 
Higher Education in America, published by Viking Press in 1990. And coming from a man who uh, was a prominent historian, taught in a number of schools, was founding provost of the University of California at Santa Cruz, which tempted me to uh, hold it against him, but uh, at any rate, he did write a good book. He describes how, because he was uh, very much influenced before he went to graduate school by Eugen Rosenstock Husey, mm -hmm. a man who had quite an influence on me, he was uh, barred for a time from the graduate division of Harvard. Mm because uh, they resented Rosenstock QC, who had taught at Harvard Certainly. and uh, had been uh, not a conformist, had broken ranks with them all. These are the people who are always giving us little lectures on tolerance. Yes. And they're anti-bigotry. Yes. In the course of this, he has a great deal of interesting historical information. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Dabney indicated would happen in the North was that between the corporations and the unions, socialism would come in because of the triumph of the North. And Page Smith, as an historian, comments, the most dramatic and traumatic events of the post-war era, that is, post-Civil War era, had to do with a desperate struggle by working men and women to share in the burgeoning prosperity of the nation. By the end of the war, real wages had shrunk by one-third from 1860. Isn't that interesting? Yes. He has a great deal that he throws in, by the way, to indicate that our historiography and our research today is anything but what it should be. Well, could I bring up a book along that line? Yes, let me just comment uh, a little bit more. I could spend an evening on this, but I'd encourage everyone to... Uh, get it and read it. He speaks of the secular monks and acolytes of the newly founded religion of the university. Yeah, they're little collectives. Mm -hmm. Collective societies. Yes. No strangers allowed. Yes. Well, I read a, an article in the recent issue of Encounter is a British publication by John Grigg who was evaluating World Wars One and Two. Which of these two wars he said was the more moral? And he talked about the fact that in World War One volunteers staffed the British Army uh, for the first two years. But in World War Two the leaders took no chances and the draft began at once. And he had a number of other comparisons. 
which were equally striking, but his major point was that World War I was more moral than World War II, although it's always presented as the opposite. It's always presented that in World War I men were wasted for no purpose, and World War II was a good war because Hitler was defeated. But he said that is not the case. Because, he said, we engaged in terror bombing of civilians in World War II, and that is something that the men of World War I would never have dreamed of doing. And, of course, we forgave ourselves for that very easily because nobody has ever dared to, I guess, bring the matter up on this side of the water. They're much more candid on the other side. And it brings to mind a book that was sent to me called Other Losses, an investigation into the mass deaths of German prisoners at the hands of the French and Americans after World War II by a Canadian named James Back, B-A-C-Q-U-E, published by Stoddard Publishing in Canada in 1989. This is a horrifying book. I'd like to borrow that. Yes, I'll be happy to lend it to you. It's one of the worst books I guess I have ever read. It traces instructions from Eisenhower on the mistreatment of German prisoners in Europe. They were put in open fields. They slept in the open, in holes in the ground. They were put on starvation rations. They died by the millions. More men from the German armed forces died in the West after the war than died during the war. And, of course, their ranks were decimated or more than decimated by disease and so forth. The author goes on to say that the German people dared not talk about this because they've been covered with odium since World War II They've been afraid to say a word, although, of course, the deaths of that many millions of men affecting that many families is known from one end of Germany to the other. The suppression of the truth about what the Allies did in World War II still continues, and I think the trial of Count Tolstoy is an indication of that because the case against him was not well made, and yet he lost. Yes, he did. And it brings up what you brought up in a way before, which Paige Smith has brought up. The fact that history in the hands of the academy and history in the hands of governments becomes an instrument of propaganda It always has been so. But it is worse today because we will no longer admit anything to the other side. Mm -hmm. We are now being given a sort of demonology where everybody is either black or white. 
a person who is uh, against abortion is a fanatic. And a person who is for abortion is called a person who just chooses. Uh, murder is coming under euphemisms that uh, Goebbels would admire. And, of course, a book like Other Losses, which has never been reviewed, so far as I know, it's is an underground book. It, it, uh, the Canadians were not involved, so therefore the Canadians had no uh, qualms about against having it published. Uh, I should think that a matter of charges of this depth and seriousness would require an investigation. That was what Count Tolstoy demanded in England. And he wound up being bankrupted for his yes. temerity. Well, that makes me uh, want to go back to Paige Smith just for a minute or two. Are you through? By I'm the way? through. Yes. yes. Because he calls attention to the moral bankruptcy and intellectual bankruptcy of academicians and the intellectuals. He says of all the modern cults, perhaps that of the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh is perhaps the most stupid and the most bizarre. But he said his infatuated uh, followers, the great majority of them, were people with college degrees and many with advanced degrees. PhDs were a dime a dozen in the Purim, and the largest professional group represented were psychologists. Well, of course you know my opinion that that just means that they went to obedience school for a long time. <laughs> uh, many of the Rajneeshis uh, had given all their worldly goods to the Bhagwan. When the journalist Francis <laughs> Fitzgerald visited the Purim, she was astonished at the professional backgrounds of the Rajneeshis. The commune city planner, Swami Deva Wadud, had been a professional city planner in San Mateo, California, and boasted an M.A. from the Harvard Graduate School of Design. His assistant was an Australian with a Ph.D. in linguistic philosophy. Another disciple had a degree from Harvard in visual and environmental studies. The president of the commune had been a systems analyst for IBM and Univac, and studied computer sciences at the University of London. The list seems endless. The chief publicist had a Ph.D. from Yale. He goes on to say their average age was slightly over 30. They came from families where the fathers were overwhelmingly professionals or businessmen. And... Uh, 12% had Ph.D. Uh, D degrees, half had Protestant backgrounds, a quarter were Jewish, and a quarter Roman Catholic. And here they were in the wilds of Oregon with a silent guru who never spoke. It was better that way. Yes. And he says, this is not an episode limited to the Americans. The French consul at Pune told Fitzgerald that an estimated 250,000 Frenchmen were living in India 
in the mid-70s, seeking enlightenment from a variety of gurus. At the height of the movement, there were a, a dozens of Rajneesh Purams scattered about Europe and Australia, a large number in West Germany, and a substantial number in England. Yes, common to all was the fact that they attracted a disproportionate number of highly educated and successful men and women. They were looking for something in which to believe. Yes. You have to feel sorry for them. Anything but Christianity. Their education had left them with no belief, with no faith. Of course, they were not going to go to Christianity because you lose your class position if you become mm-hmm. Christian. A Christian is a second-class citizen. He has no social status. <clears throat> Can I try one on you? This is a, yes. a book which is of very great importance. The name is Liability by Peter Huber. Yes. It's published, published by Basic Books, and the subtitle is The Legal Revolution and Its Consequences. <clears throat> Now, this is an examination of the concept of tort actions against business. And, of course, you and I have discussed the fact that this is going to engulf churches and church groups and nonprofit groups as well. It hasn't hit us yet in a large way, but it has hit business. And some of the cases are mind-boggling. There was one a pharmaceutical company, a chemical company, that was sued by a rancher whose Mexican cowhands had given, against their printed instructions, certain chemicals to a prize bull because they couldn't read the English instructions. Nevertheless, he sued the manufacturer. The jury found for him and company had to pay him $10 million. Yes. This sort of thing is going on and on and on, and the courts are presiding over it. Mm-hmm. Now, Huber doesn't go into that. Mm-hmm. He's only going into the cases and what happened. He's not mentioning the judges. We are in a very peculiar position of treating judges as though they're disembodied spirits. Yes. They're not held responsible for the damages that they are inflicting upon this society. I think that's an amazing oversight. An amazing oversight. I I think, uh, well, of course, lampposts come to mind, but I have to suppress the thought. Well, that reminded me of something which perhaps is totally out of context, but when you talked about a man whose employee gave uh, the wrong thing to a prize bull. It reminded me of the fact, as you know, I write a column for the California farmer, Pastor's Pulpit. The late and very fine editor of the California farmer had a ranch, and he had a prize bull that was not performing for a while. And uh, named Ferdinand. <laughs> Go ahead. So <laughs> he got some medicine that was supposed to take care of the bull. It was supposed to be a kind of tablet, and they were to hold the uh, 
bull's jaws open and uh, shoot it down with a kind of a blowgun. Neat, neat trick if you can do it. <laughs> down the bull's throat. <laughs> Nothing was happening. The bull was not improving. <laughs> and then he found out that his cow hands were taking the tablets instead. <laughs> And giving the bill a placebo. <laughs> Maybe an aspirin or something. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> You're leaving us hanging. <laughs> well, he had to take over treating the bull himself. <laughs> we don't know what happened to the cow hands. <laughs> he never said. <laughs> I'm old. Very funny story. Very funny. Well, the liability book is pretty scary. Yes, I'd like to read that sometime. Would you? Yes. Okay. Well, we have just a few minutes. Is there something in the way of a last little item you'd like to bring up out of? Well, it's, it's interesting to me that with all this talk about the, the electronic media and all the other instruments of communications, the radio, films, tapes, records, and so forth, that books are still what determine the thinking of the world. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Yes. And the future is going to be determined by Christians increasingly because... The Christian schools are the only ones who are turning out literate young people. And they're the readers, so that they're going to be the future leaders as well as the future readers. Well, no, the thing about a reader is that nobody can lock up his mind. That's right. Well, our time is over. We thank you all for listening, and God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.